Section 3 of Sunbeams by George W. Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When Dad Was Scared A lady friend in the East who was writing stories for a Philadelphia paper, having heard that once when the editor of The Sun was governor of the state, he showed great coolness in a case where a crazy man entered the executive office and demanded money, writes to get the particulars of the story. But for fear the impression will get out that the governor was actually cool under the trying circumstances, it is considered best to publish his reply to her in full, which is as follows. Milwaukee, June twentieth, 1899. My dear M., you ask me if I can recall the circumstance of the crazy man entering the executive office and demanding money of me, and the cool manner in which I stood him off. If I live to be as old as the late Mr. Methuselah, who, I am told, was an old resident of Philadelphia and lived on Market Street, I shall never forget that morning that the crazy man came in on his collecting expedition. Five years have passed me since that morning, and yet I can hardly go to sleep at night without seeing his cold, glittering eyes looking into mine, and I can hear the hair push up through my nightcap, and as I finally go to sleep, the hairs curl down outside the nightcap, so it has to be taken off like a porous plaster in the morning. But I was not cool. Don't ever let anyone make you believe I was cool until he had gone away. It was the day after Carter Harrison had been murdered by a crazy man, and the papers were full of stories about the seeming desire of the demented people to do injury to those who held prominent positions, and governors and things were a little nervous. About eleven o'clock a wild-looking man came into my room where I was alone, the door always being open, the secretary and messenger having desks in an adjoining room. The man came up to the end of the table, with his hands on his hip pockets, leaned over so his face was within six inches of mine, and his eyes glittered like those of a rattlesnake about to strike, and he said, I want five thousand dollars out of the First National Bank right away or I'll kill you and he stood there as if frozen stiff and rigid, and never turned his eyes away from mine. In a second the situation dawned on me, and I could almost hear the water dripping from my body to the carpet below my chair, from the perspiration, I suppose. I had played poker some before I went into politics, years ago, in the army, and I thought I had schooled myself so that my opponent could not tell whether I had a bobtail flush or four aces by looking at my face. And I looked the crazy man right in the eye before I knew it. I said, All right, boss, sit right down, make a six thousand. He backed up to a chair and sat down without removing his eyes from mine. There was a revolver in a drawer at my right a drawer that I had had the carpenter put in that morning, and I thought I could reach it and kill the man before he could kill me. But I had never killed many people, and I thought if I killed him just for asking for a little money, it would be brought up against me at the next election. 
I remember how a thousand things of that kind passed through my mind in a second, how I thought maybe he was striking me for a campaign assessment, and how I thought it was mighty high. Then I thought of poor Carter Harrison, and whether I could get away to attend his funeral, or whether my funeral might not be held the day after. All these thoughts did not take ten seconds, and I was looking at him, and he at me. I turned my eyes to look at my hand on the table, to see if it trembled, and I wondered if a man could go on transacting important business if his heart stopped beating, and I tried to breathe naturally, as though I was only standing off a man who came in with an ordinary bill. Then the man said, Hurry up, and I said, I will send a man over to the bank with you, and he said, All right. I put my right hand out on the table to ring the electric bell for the messenger, and I noticed the hand was very white, but I left it there on the electric button because it was within four inches of the revolver in the drawer, and I thought if he made a jump at me I would put a thirty-eight caliber long right through his heart, and I remembered putting five bullets inside an envelope on a tree up at the Hurricane Clubhouse a few days before and I remembered of wondering if that long pale forefinger of mine on the button had strength enough to pull that self-cocking Smith and Wesson that Chief Chanson gave me. Oh, I was cool. I was dying right there. Then Schubert, the Lutheran music minister whom I had appointed messenger, came in, and he looked to me awfully small for a fight with a crazy man. But I remember that I thought, Maybe he is one of those German turners who can walk all over a man like a cat, and wondered why I had not thought to find out before if he was an athlete. When Schubert came in, the man rose up, and I quit thinking, and I said, Mr. Schubert, I want you to go with this gentleman over to the First National Bank and identify him and tell Mr. Ramsey to give him six thousand dollars. A smile came to Schubert's face, and I feared the crazy man would see it, and all would be over. But I now had my hand on the pearl handle of the revolver, and I never had anything feel so good. I have handled lots of things in my time, gold doubloons, silver certificates, a million dollars in bonds, and plenty of things valuable. I have handled hot-boiled eggs and gold nuggets, held in my hand the soft white hand of the dearest girl that ever came down the pike when I was younger, and once a jeweler let me handle a thirty-carat blue diamond as big as a bantam's egg, but nothing that I ever held in that right hand ever felt so smooth and beautiful and satisfactory as did the pearl handle of that self-cocking revolver, and I could not help putting my finger on the trigger and pressing a little to see if I had strength to shoot, and when I felt the plunger beginning to come back to where it has to come before it shoots, and it seemed easy enough, I let it down again. My heart began to beat regular, and I said to myself, I wouldn't do a thing but make a porous plaster of his left shirt bosom. Schubert got a look at the man and at my face, and he took it all in and said, All right, come on and the two went out the door, and I put the revolver in my pistol pocket and went out in the other room, 
and told my secretary to run to the police office and get an officer and head off Schubert and the crazy man. Then I went out in the hall and called Schubert back and said, The man is crazy. Kill time going through the park so Clark can get the police. And the crazy man stood still while I whispered to Schubert. I picked out a black marble tiling where I would drop him if he pulled a gun. Schubert turned pale and went out in the park with the man. Then I went to the window and watched the play. Poor Clark was lame in one foot, but he got over the ground like a racehorse, and Schubert walked slow and went crooked across the lawn, and I stood at the window and perspired. I was weak and wanted a drink of whiskey worse than ever in my life. Pretty soon I saw Clark coming with a big policeman, saw the officer take the crazy man by the arm and lead him off. Clark and Schubert came back fanning themselves and looking as though they had done a day's work in the harvest field. I said, I hope you fellows were not frightened, and they said they knew I was not by the way I looked, and then we had a great laugh over it, though I had to tickle myself in the ribs with my thumb in order to laugh. You know how it is when you know it is your turn to laugh, but you had rather cry. I felt like a man I saw once at a maple sugar party, who tipped a soup plate full of hot maple syrup into his lap, and when all the rest laughed he stood up and tried to back away from his warm trousers that were sticking to his person, and he tried to laugh too. When we got him undressed and were putting oil and cotton batting on his body where he was blistered, I said, What in thunder were you laughing at when that syrup went in your lap? He said, as he groaned with pain, Egad, I had to. It was my turn. Well, I had to laugh when the crazy man episode was over, because it was my turn, but it was not that hearty, hilarious laugh you might hear at a picnic or on a steamboat excursion when surrounded by those whom you love and enjoy being with. Do you know that even today I can't think of that affair without having creeps up my back? Well, the next day they sent the man to the insane asylum, from whence he had escaped, and he is there yet for all I know, and that is all there is to the story of my coolness, your friend. THE YELLOW SHOE PERIOD It is said Dewey was the first man in Washington years ago, when yellow shoes were invented, to put on a pair of them. The officials in his office laughed at him and guyed him, and though the shoes hurt his feet, till he almost fainted, he would not take them off for fear it would look as though the boys had driven him to do so by their chaffing. Now that yellow shoes have become legal tender, we can all laugh, but it was a serious matter when a man first decided to wear them. First he talked about yellow shoes at home, till the family had consented that they were a good thing, but when a pair was delivered at his house everybody said, I hope you are not going to wear those things, and he was sad. He would let them stand in his room for a day or two, till he got so he would not shy at them himself, and some morning he would put them on. If he was a middle-aged or elderly man, it was even worse, for when he came stubbing his toes downstairs and showed up before the family, his wife or someone would scream or pretend to faint away, and he would try to look as though he had always worn yellow shoes, 
and perhaps go into the kitchen and spring them on the servant girls, who would hide their faces and snigger when he went out, and then he would take them off and wear his old black shoes downtown. It usually took the average man about a week of wearing the yellow shoes around the house mornings and evenings before he dared to wear them downtown, but some men wore them downtown nights at first and imagined no one noticed them, though when the wearer got near an arc light he almost had heart disease. Finally the middle-aged man got courage and he started out for the streetcar on a bright morning with the yellow shoes on and tried to look as though he didn't know they were yellow, but he couldn't help looking down at them as he stood waiting for a car, and it did seem to him as though he never saw anything so yellow in his life. Then the car would come along, and he wished there were not three or four passengers on the front platform smoking, for he could feel that they were commenting on his shoes, and he would swear that he saw the motorman laughing at some remark the passengers made. But in an age or two, the front of the car would get by, and he would get on the rear platform hurriedly, thinking no one there would notice his shoes, but he would stub his toe on the top step and go up to the platform on a hop, skip, and jump, and plant one of those yellow boys on the foot of a passenger who would get mad and say something about a man bringing sole-leather portmanteaus onto the cars, and all the passengers on the hind platform would look at the yellow shoes in pity. When he got in the car, he could hear them laughing out there and swearing, and he would have given a five-dollar note if he had never bought the shoes, and he would take them back now, only the soles were soiled. He would sit down in a seat with a strange woman and think the shoes were out of sight, and then she would lean over in front and look down on them, and he could see a man across the aisle, hunch another man with his elbow, and see them both look across at his feet. There might be a dozen other men on the car with yellow shoes on, but nobody paid any attention to them. A man in front of him would look around and sniff as though he smelled something, and he knew it was his new yellow shoes the man smelled, and the perspiration would start out on his neck and face. The ordeal came when he had to get off the car, he would be away up in front and wish he could go out the front door, but he knew what he would get from those smokers in front, so he would boldly walk back through the car, and every last passenger would look down at his new shoes, and ladies whose skirts were out in the aisle would pull them in, and when he got through the gang of pirates on the rear platform and was on the ground, he would swear to get even with all of them before he died. Then he would walk down the sidewalk to his place of business, and it would seem as though he met the whole population, and that every man looked down at the yellow shoes, and frequently he would be sure he saw a smile on a man's face that he could not remember of ever seeing smile before, and he would stub one toe against the heel of his other shoe and try to act as though that was the way he always walked, and he didn't care a continental what anybody thought but he would finally get to his office and see the clerks stare at him and was never so happy in his life as when he got those yellow shoes under his desk out of sight. He would think the novelty would wear off before noon, but his spirit would be broken, for about eleven o'clock he would send a boy to the house after his old black shoes, and he would put them on and go out to luncheon happy for the first time that day, 
and when he came back he would offer to sell the yellow shoes to the office boy for half price, but he couldn't fool the office boy. And finally, when the yellow shoes had begun to go out of style late in the fall, he would put them on and wear them every day. Dewey is not the only man that has had troubles of his own with yellow shoes. End of section 3 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina